Good morning, morning. Nice to see you all. Uh, for those who I've not had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Nathaniel. I'm one of the elders here at Gateway Church. I've literally just come up from our other site at Older Road, uh, so preaching both sites this morning. Um, because I spend all of my Sunday mornings here, it was actually the first Sunday morning I'd spent up there, so it was really great to see them absolutely thriving, and they send their love. Well, some of them did, but I'm sure the other ones love you as well. So, uh, love to all, and uh, yeah, it was, it was wonderful to, to be up there and now here. Um, we are in John chapter 9 this morning. Um, I, it would be ha- we're going to read the whole thing. And so it would be handy if you're the sort of person who likes to read along to have a Bible in your hand because it won't appear on the screen. So John 9, if you're using one of these church Bibles, it is page 1075. 1075 in there. And uh, that's where we will be today. Great. Now, before we dive straight into John 9, I want to start by telling you about some of my TV watching habits this week. I watched a documentary called Behind the Curve. Anybody recognize it? Anybody ever seen Behind the Curve? Behind the Curve is a documentary about a series of prominent flat earthers who talk about their conviction that the earth is indeed flat. And it follows these flat earthers around as they talk about why they believe what they believe. And they have even flat earth conventions where they all get together and talk about their belief in flat earth. And it featured some, as you would imagine, featured some prominent scientists who on the other side gave some of the science behind why the earth isn't actually flat. And so uh, there was this juxtaposition in in the documentary as you watched. Uh, In response to that, a series of flat earth, or a number of flat earthers who call themselves the globe busters, Uh, actually run experiments to prove their theory that the Earth is flat. And so as this documentary goes on, you see the Globebusters running a series of of experiments to show uh, that their uh, belief that the Earth is flat is true. Uh, Now, as you can imagine, their experiments all had the exact same conclusion that the Earth is not flat. Uh, So they would run one of their experiments and, oh dear, it's not worked. Well, it must be something wrong with the experiment. Let's run it again. So they run it again, slightly different conditions, and, ah, no, that didn't give us the right result either. Well, maybe it's a problem with the experiment itself. Let's do a different experiment. And this experiment, this is going to be the one. This experiment will definitely show that the Earth is flat. And so they do another experiment, and they get to the end of that, and they think, ah, now there's some trouble because uh, none of these experiments seem to be doing the right thing. Maybe it's all these experiments are wrong. It's a problem with all the experiments. Experimentation in general is broken. The documentary concludes with all of these people continuing in their flat earth belief. Not a single mind was changed, and everybody carried on as they were. Now, don't worry. This morning's message isn't about convincing you that the earth is round, but it is about the pursuit of truth and what happens when we're confronted with truth. Because truth and fact has the ability to alter our beliefs and alter our perceptions. There was a time where doctors didn't think it was necessary to wash their hands after touching patients. And uh, the cure for the common cold was a little bit of heroin. Anyone? Yeah. Mercury and radium were safe to handle until poor Marie Curie found out that that wasn't the case at all. And in France, until surprisingly recently, it was actually thought that potatoes were poisonous to eat. So you might agree with that still, I don't know. But 
As our scientific understanding has developed, our pursuit of knowledge has grown and our theories have been tested. And we've had to update our understanding of what's true and what's false, what's fact and what's fiction. Like it or not, there are now many ways of proving, unfortunately, that the earth is round. So this morning, I want to read from the Bible and I want, to, to, I want you to approach it with a critical eye. As we read, put yourself in the story as someone watching it unfold. If you observe this action taking place, what would you have done when presented with the facts as they're shared this morning, how would you have handled it? Try to think of yourself as a jury member presiding over a case, looking objectively at the facts as they're presented, and draw your own conclusions. We're going on a pursuit of truth this morning. Is that okay? Happy to join me on one of those? Great. We'll see two different reactions to the action as it unfolds, and I hope to bring you something of the meaning of this passage today as well. Like I said, we are in John chapter 9, continuing our preaching series through the Gospel of John, page 1075 in our church Bibles, and I'm going to read from verses 1 to 12 to kick us off. As he went along, he saw a man, he here being Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents, uh, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man or his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as, as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming where no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing his neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging said, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, 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 no. He only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am that man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. It's very matter of fact, isn't it? Uh, when, uh, where is the man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Let's pause right there. So we see this amazing healing miracle take place in this chapter, and it's been something that's been quite common. If you've been coming along week after week and running through this series in John with us, actually, wherever Jesus goes, normally miracles follow. And so as we've been reading through the Gospel of John, we've seen healings, and we've seen deliverance, and we've seen amazing signs happen as Jesus ministers. But it's not the act of healing itself here that this chapter is focused upon, but rather the reaction to it. Indeed, the appearance of this man blind from birth with perfectly good sight is causing some problems from some, for some of the observers already. Even the man's neighbors are so flabbergasted that it's actually easier to believe that he's a different man rather than that he's now seeing. So the passage opens, and Jesus is with his disciples. They're likely in or near Jerusalem, and they encounter this man blind from birth, and the disciples question why he's blind, but Jesus uses it as an opportunity to show them that they're asking the wrong question. This isn't a question of sin, but it's all about a savior. And in doing this, Jesus repeats the I am statement, calling himself the light of the world. If you were here last week, it was a, a claim that was made in John chapter 8, and that claim was interrogated here as we opened and read from John chapter 8. But the reassertion of the claim here is important in the context of our passage, because as this man is healed from his blindness, we need to understand that you can't hear light. 
You can't taste it. You can't touch it. What you can do is see it. Indeed, without light, there's nothing. There's nothing to see. The absence of light is darkness. So Jesus is the light in that he's the source. He's the light in that he's illuminating the world for us to see it as it is and for us to see him as he is. In healing this blind man, in restoring his ability to see light physically, he's pointing us to the world's true light source and what we truly need to be seeing and that it's actually our spiritual blindness that needs healing. Earlier this year, a Spanish woman called Beatrice Flamini emerged from a cave that she had spent 500 days living inside. She went into this cave in November 2021. COVID was at its height. Can you journey back and remember as far back as November 2021? Well, she emerged in April this year after 500 days, and she documented her experiences to help scientists understand the effects of extreme isolation. And without sunlight, one of the first things that Beatrice says she lost was her sense of time, her sense of rhythm. There's something about having light in the world that helps us to be ordered in the way that the world actually works. In fact, it was so profound that when she came to the end of her 500 days and her team came to pull her out and say, hey, 500 days is over, she thought only 170 days had passed because her rhythms were so off. She couldn't figure out night from day. She didn't know what the time was. The passing of time was meaningless in a place that was without light. Without light, the cave didn't have that rhythm that we're so used to in the world. Plants can't grow. She had to take all of her food with her. Without light, it's actually very difficult to do very basic things. We need light as humans. We need light to see. But living in a world of light, there's also something about light that is helpful in providing us our rhythm. Without light, the world will become disordered very quickly. Sunflowers won't grow right. Things just won't work properly without light. There's a strong claim that Jesus is making here by calling himself the light. He's, re- he's referencing in our ability to see the truth as it truly is, as he illuminates it for us. But it also speaks to Jesus' wider role in shaping and bringing a rhythm to life in the world. Without Jesus, there is something about this world that is disordered in the same way that without light in the world, there is something about the world that's disordered. And so as this man was blind from birth, we're also to read the parallels for ourselves. Because we're all born blind to the truth of who Jesus is. When we're born, we don't come preloaded with that knowledge. Actually, for each one of us here today who would call themselves a Christian, you've had that moment where Jesus has been revealed to you. Your spiritual blindness has been cured in that sense. Each one of us was invited to come and see the truth and to see the light of who Jesus is. That's what it means to be a Christian, to believe. You've at some point said yes to Jesus. You've seen the light in that sense. Your spiritual blindness has been removed. So back to our story, and Jesus is in the process of bringing physical healing uh, to this blind man, and he does something strange. He spits on the dirt, and then he bends down, and using the dirt and the saliva, he kneads this kind of paste, which he then puts onto the blind man's eyes, and he's then told to go and wash them in a nearby pool to receive his sight, which he does, and he's healed. Amazing, right? Amazing, see? Uh, He rightly points to Jesus as the result of the healing rather than the pool, and he leaves his neighbors and onlookers in astonishment. Let's read what happens next. For this, we need to return back to page 1075. We're reading now from verse 13. Strap in, because we're going right the way through to verse 34, okay? So let's go. They brought uh, to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath, Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. 
Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how could a sinner perform such signs? And so they were divided. Then they uh, turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say had been born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can now see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him yourself. A second time, they summoned the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you, and you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Keep a finger in that page there. We'll return to the story again in a bit. Now, I work in a very busy press office. That's what I do day to day. Uh, I work um, dealing with the media for a living. And one of the main things that we're tasked with doing is finding experts to talk about important things that go on around the world. So if something happens that's of significance, if there's something in the news, normally our press office would get a phone call and they'd say, have you got an expert that we can speak to who can tell us why this thing that's happening is important, who can tell us a little bit more about what's actually going on here? And it's one of my, and it's one of my favorite things to do, to then go hunting for the right person who can give us a little bit more information about that thing that's happened. This week, I've taken phone calls about the Women's World Cup. Come on, in into the semi-finals. I've taken phone calls about the uh, migrant barge that's currently off the coast of Portland and having all sorts of troubles. I've even taken phone calls about the rise in AI and how we're all supposed to be using it in our everyday life now. And at each of these turns, at each phone call, uh, I then need to put the phone down and then hurry quickly and go and find an expert. Do Have I got an expert in AI? Have I got an expert in migrant rights? Have I got an expert in women's football who can come and tell us what it is that uh, is significant about this thing that's been happening in the news? When something big happens, you often need to find that expert to explain, to tell you why it matters. And that's uh, what a part of my job that I really love, going and hunting for those experts and providing that informed comment. That's what we call it, informed comment on the, the news as it's happening. Uh, when uh, the phone goes, the race is on to find the right person who can answer the questions and bring an informed and an, an objective opinion to what is going on in the world. <coughs> that's what we see is actually happening here. Something miraculous has happened. A man who has been born blind can now see. 
I mean, what do we do with this information? Where do we go? Where do we start? Well, where you start is you try and find somebody who's got a little bit more of an expertise on this sort of thing than you do. And so that's what the, the neighbors did here, confronted with a man who was blind but now sees. Well, let's go to the local religious leaders. Maybe they know more about this than we do. Maybe they can provide some informed comments, some answers to this miraculous question that we've got going on here. And these local religious leaders, the Bible passage today calls them the Pharisees, um, are, are then asked, well, what's going on here? We, look, at this, look at this man, what's going on? Tell us. And what they find when they approach the Pharisees isn't an objective opinion. It's not informed comment of what's just happened. And the Pharisees don't react in the way that people thought they might. Rather than celebrate this miraculous healing or provide informed comment on what's going on or to give context to it, they go on the offensive. What they say instead was, whoa, whoa, whoa. Sounds like this happened on the Sabbath. Isn't it an offense for this to have taken place today? See, healing was forbidden on the Sabbath for the Jews. That's a day of rest. It's a day where you're not supposed to do any work. And healing at this time would have been forbidden except in cases where life itself was in danger. And if this man had been born blind, I don't think anybody could claim there was any urgency in doing his healing now. Why not do it Tuesday afternoon, you know? Um, and so uh, there was something of this that actually went against what the Pharisees believed. Actually, even that act of picking up dirt from the ground and kneading it into a paste, kneading was also against Sabbath law. You weren't supposed to do any kneading. And so this man's kind of, he, maybe he's committed multiple crimes here. This man, as far as we're concerned, is a sinner. He's done wrong. How can the result of this be healing? They're angry and annoyed, and an inquiry's opened, a little bit like a police inquiry or you know, a HR inquiry at work. Something has happened. We need to get to the bottom of it. And so they open an inquiry, and they ask the man again. Oh, I would say the man, by the way, is not concerned at all about what day it is. He's not bothered that he now sees on a Sunday or a Tuesday or a Thursday. Hey, I can see. Don't you worry about that. He's just happy he's healed. He's under no illusion about what happened. And at this point, he's asked, well, what happened? And who, who is this man? And he calls Jesus a prophet. They call for more witnesses, this time in the form of the man's parents, but his parents are so worried about the consequences of saying that anything's wrong that they deflect it back to their son. All the, all the hard questions get deflected right back to his son. I would say it's not a ringing endorsement of their parenting skills, but parents, alas, are not perfect. And it seems that the consequences were already being seen in that they were being told that anybody who acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, anybody who called Jesus Christ, would be put out of the synagogue would be removed from the community. And actually, there's something about being removed from community that's as painful now as it was then, that kind of cancel culture very much alive in what we're seeing here. Anybody who says this is getting kicked out, all right? Uh, and so they deflect all of the hard questions back to their son. You'll have to ask him. But they do help by confirming, yes, he's our son, and yes, he was blind from birth. And so these Pharisees do their deliberating, and they speak to all concerned parties, and they speak to the healed man again, and he still won't change his story. He's healed, thanks very much. He knows what the facts are, like them or not. But they're being very thorough with this investigation. Is this really the same man? Was he really born blind? Can he now really see? Who did the healing? But rather than concluding that this is a miracle and that Jesus is who he says he is, and that the healing is a clear sign of it, they hurl abuse at the man, and they cast him from the synagogue. He's cancelled. They've reached a sort of unanimous decision. Jesus is a sinner, and God doesn't listen to them, so this can't be a God thing. How dare anybody suggest otherwise? At the same time, the man won't back down. He's got the evidence. He was blind. Now he's not. No other explanation. He's been healed. His experiences are leading him to a different conclusion. So he says, one thing I know, I was blind, now I see. 
And actually, isn't it uh, amazing that actually that's been the testimony for so many of us? It's often an experience with Jesus that leaves us unable to say that he isn't real anymore. And actually, that's so often what we see when our spiritual blindness is healed. It's an encounter with Jesus that leaves us different. We know because we've experienced. We know because we feel. We know because we've experienced Jesus for who he truly is. So... There's an irony here as well, because these Pharisees, they're Jewish lead, local religious Jewish leaders, they know their law very well, because they're using their law to pass judgment on what's happened here in this, in this case, in this inquiry. They're deliberating what happened on the Sabbath and going to the law to understand whether any laws have been broken, and they're using it to judge the actions of Jesus. They call themselves disciples of Moses. We know they, they must have really known the law very well, but actually, if they knew their law, they would know that their law points to a Messiah who will come to heal the blind. If we turn in our Bibles back into the Old Testament and into Isaiah, the Old Testament is full of prophecy or full of, of, um, uh, of words of what will happen in the future, things to come. And it says on three, at least three different occasions in Isaiah, start Isaiah 29, it's on the screen behind me if you want to read along as well. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant with the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. As we're about to see, Jesus came into the world attesting that he's the Messiah, fulfilling scripture and bringing sight to the blind, a light into the darkness and eternal life to anyone who believes in him. And it's something that the Pharisees here were unwilling to do and unwilling to see in, the face, in, in face of the evidence that had been presented to them. Bible commentator Don Carson puts it this way, this chapter portrays what happens when the light shines. Some are made to see, like this man born blind, while others, who think they see, turn away, blinded, as it were, by the light. So convinced they are that Jesus is at best a charlatan, at worst a dangerous sinner, that they do not remember the ancient promises that one of the signs of the dawning of the messianic age is restoration of sight to the blind. So what we're left with here is two reacting uh, sides to our action now. On the one side, you've got the disciples. They very much know who Jesus is. They are paid-up followers of Jesus. And you've got this now not-so-blind man, <coughs> and he's now starting to see Jesus for who he is. He's already called him a prophet, and he's seeing more and more the truth of who Jesus is. On the other side here, we've got the Pharisees, who are concluding the exact opposite. This man's not from God. This man is a sinner and nothing more. The passage now invites us to ask the question, who is truly seeing correctly? I asked you to be an objective jury member this morning, examining the facts. So far, which side do you think you fall on? Presented with the evidence at hand, what conclusions are you starting to draw on the action that you've seen? Let's conclude reading the final few verses. And in your Bibles, you'll find them under the heading, Spiritual Blindness, a real clue to what's going on here in this morning's passage. Let me read. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. 
Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So Jesus finds the man and he makes it clear that he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the one who was promised, the one who fulfilled scripture. And hey, I'm standing right in front of you. This is me. You've got to remember that this is the first time that the man is actually seeing Jesus with his own eyes. Because when Jesus found the man at first, he made that paste and he put it on his eyes and he told him to go and wash. And so when the man is healed and sees for the first time, he's actually nowhere near Jesus. He's in a pool. And so this is the first time that this man is seeing Jesus face to face. But now that he's face to face, he's seeing Jesus in a very different way. Jesus himself is the word come to life, the one who uniquely reveals God and the one who's opening spiritual eyes to the reality of his sonship. And this passage shows the crossover from this blind man who's increasingly seeing Jesus as the Messiah and the Pharisees who are becoming harder and more blind about the reality of who Jesus is. This is a a parable of spiritual blindness across the nation. And Jesus wants us to see that there's a blindness that can disable our sight and there's a blindness that prevents us from coming to eternal life. And Jesus here is most concerned with our spiritual healing. It's why he came to earth, not just to heal physically, but to bring spiritual healing, spiritual sight, to cure spiritual blindness for all who speak or all who seek the truth of who Jesus is. In this moment, the man who had been healed truly sees Jesus for the first time. And when he truly sees Jesus for who he actually is, his response is worship. He's face down in worship at the sight of Jesus as he truly is. The Messiah, the Son of God, it's you. And he worships. The local leaders had been bringing judgment on this situation. They'd opened their inquiry and they'd come to their conclusion. But the conclusion that they'd come to was the wrong one. And here Jesus reframes the entire premise. He's not the one who is to be judged in this situation, but he's the judge. He's the one who sees us for who we truly are. He's the one who sees all of our wrongdoing. But actually what he doesn't bring is condemnation. What he brings is love and healing and acceptance to anybody who believes in him. He's the one who calls us into a relationship with him, who seeks us out so that our spiritual blindness is revealed and dealt with by saying yes to the truth of who Jesus is. We see our relationship with God and our eternity secured. And so in curing spiritual blindness, Jesus is also bringing a warning. Some of the Pharisees are still engaged in this conversation, and they ask for clarification. Whoa, 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 calling us blind? And the answer that they're given is quite stark. Those who see Jesus and don't respond to who he is are blind. Yes. Jesus came into the world that we might see, and those who don't will be left to their own sin and shame, left, as it were, in darkness. Does anybody remember the old film The Matrix? It's kind of old now. It feels old to me. It's not classic, but it feels old. You remember it? Good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, for those who don't remember it, The Matrix is about this group of renegade fighters who are working to rescue mankind from the clutches of machines. And these machines have made a virtual world for humans to live through, uh, live in through their own consciousnesses. And they're actually plugged into this virtual reality through a plug in the back of their heads. And our hero in this story is a chap called Neo, and he's rescued from this virtual reality. They pull the plug out from the back of his head, and he's now in the real world, the world of the machines. 
And in so doing, Morpheus, who's the leader of this renegade group and the chap that you can see there behind me, says to Neo, you have to understand, Neo, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inured, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they'll fight to protect it. And I think that's a little bit of what we've been seeing here with our Pharisees as we've been reading through the story. There's a sense that they're looking at the evidence before them, but they're more willing to hold on to what they've got rather than what they're seeing is happening in front of them. Jesus is telling us not to do the same thing. And so what do we do with what we've heard this morning in our pursuit of truth in examining the evidence before us? Where do we draw our conclusions and what actions do we take? Like in the Flat Earth documentary or the Pharisees in John 9, we need to come to the right conclusion, not the conclusion that best fits what we have come to believe. We need to find the truth of what's right. I believe that there are two, two responses this morning to what we've heard. And the first is to respond to the claims that Jesus has made. Is he the Messiah or is he not? This might be especially relevant to you if you're new to examining the claims that Jesus makes. You might say that you're not a Christian here this morning, but Jesus is inviting you to examine what you believe about him. Is it true? Is it not? At the beginning, I asked you to try to be objective, to examine the evidence before you. How might you have reacted in this situation? How might you respond? What sorts of questions might you have asked? Would you consider yourself to be more in the camp of the religious leaders at the time or more in the camp of the blind man? So as we come to respond now, what do you believe? Do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that he came into the world that the blind might see? Like I said, each one of us in this room started our journey spiritually blind, blind to the reality of who Jesus is, that he came to earth, that he performed miracles, that he fulfilled scripture, <clears throat> that he died taking on the sins of the world, all the wrong things that you and I have done, and rose to defeat sin and conquer death so that those who do see Jesus for who he truly is and put their trust in him, we're seen as right in God's eyes instead. Believing in Jesus means having your wrongdoing forgiven and dealt with. It means relationship with God, and it means a security of knowing that that relationship will last forever. It's not my intention this morning to push anybody to become a Christian, but all I invite you to do is examine what you believe, to come to a conclusion yourself as to whether it's true or whether it's not, as many in this room have done at some point in their lives as they've examined the claims of Jesus and found them, judged them to have been true. But those who don't see Jesus, or those who see Jesus and still don't believe, remain blind. That's what is the clear meaning of today's passage and a challenge that I want to bring to you. We've looked at some of the evidence this morning, we've examined it, and we've seen what these different responses have led to. And so, Seeking Jesus, as we have this morning, will you believe in him, becomes the question we need to ask. Will you ask him to help you see him as he is and allow him to work through your life, to remove your spiritual blindness and any sense of guilt or shame that you may be holding on to so that you can walk freely with him? If you want to talk more about who Jesus is, if you'd like to examine the claims of Jesus a little bit further, this is a really great place to do so. We've got a number of different ways in which you can do it, and you can speak to uh, any one of us, Gordon and Sandy or me and Em or, or whoever, and uh, we'd be happy to continue chatting with you about it. The second response that I believe we have here is for the Christian, and for this I'd like to draw your attention right back to the very start of our passage in John 9 this morning. We're back in... Uh, John 9 now chapter, uh, John chapter 9 verse 4. And it's here that Jesus points to the urgency of sharing our faith in this life. And in verse 4, Jesus says, as long as it is day, 
We must do the work of him who sent me. The night is coming where no one can work. I want you to, I'm going to read it again, and I want to draw your attention to the use of plural and single in this sentence, okay? So it says, again, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Jesus both confirms himself as the sent one, but includes the disciples, and by extension, all of us, as the we, in the work that now needs to be done. This is an active passage for us Christians. There's work to be done. It's our job to take risks and help people to examine the claims of who Jesus is. We've got work to do in helping others examine it and in providing evidence that will help people to come to their own conclusion about why Jesus is relevant in 2023 and what they believe about him. And there's an urgency to this work because we, don't, we won't be doing it forever. John Piper once said, the problem is that the church feels like we're at peacetime when we should be at war. For us Christians, we shouldn't be lulled into a false sense of security or comfort. There's work to be done, and it won't be easy. And if you've um, actually ever seen uh, racehorses racing, sometimes they get blinders put on them. You can see there a picture of a racehorse with blinders. Some people call them blinkers put on them. And their idea is that they limit the view of the horse and, and so that they can focus on what's needed rather than getting distracted by what's around them. And as I was preparing this message, I actually felt this sense for some of us that it's a little bit like being cured from blindness and then immediately having the blinders put on to prevent us from living in the fullness of the truth that we've heard, from preventing us seeing the truth of what it is that we've just heard. And I really did feel this sense that actually um, you, we have the cure for spiritual blindness. We have, received, we have come to know and understand Jesus, the truth of who he is. And yet we kind of um, willingly then put these blinders back on because it feels more comfortable to us than actually seeing the reality of who Jesus is and the work that we've got to do. Either through fear of reputational damage or what others might think or that the claims being made in culture are counter to the claims that are being made by Jesus. Or you know, perhaps this kind of... Um, false sense of security that, you know, life is comfortable and we don't need to worry too much about sharing our faith. Um, as we talk about spiritual blindness, I think there's an opportunity for us this morning uh, to talk to God about any blinders that may have crept back into our own lives that have left us blind, perhaps to areas of sin in our life or a lack of urgency for telling others what you believe uh, that are stopping you from living in the fullness of the truth of what you believe. And if that's you, then I'd love the opportunity to pray with you about that as well. Let me be clear, being ready to give a public account for your faith in Jesus can be scary and it takes courage. And for that, we can just look at the parents in our story today. The consequences of them calling Jesus the Messiah were very real and it put them off. And we must face that reality too. Increasingly, we're moving towards a post-Christian society where traditional Christian views are not in line with what culture is preaching. And so to publicly declare belief in Jesus can come with a bit of risk. But that doesn't mean that we're not charged with sharing the gospel. With, and uh, telling people about Jesus that they might themselves be able to examine the claims of who Jesus is. As Christians, we're not called just to believe, but also to go and to do the work and share our faith and tell others about Jesus as well. So on examining the evidence today and on hearing the charge from Jesus this morning that there's work to do, let's be ready to give a clear account for what we believe, to share the evidence of who Jesus is with others, that we might help others to see him as well. And if you're examining these claims for the first time, I want to pray for you that you'd be able to have a clarity about the way that you go about that as well. So I'd love for you to join me in standing. I'm going to pray for us and 
Luanga and the band can come back and lead us in some time of song. Father, I do want to thank you for sending your son Jesus to earth. Thank you that in so doing, he fulfilled scripture, that he came and he healed people physically, but that he came that we might truly see him for who he is, your son. Thank you, Lord, that he died and rose again so that those who believe in him might not perish but have eternal life, their wrongdoing removed. Lord, I do pray you'd help us to continue to share our faith with others so that we, uh, so that we might help others to examine the, tra- the claims of Jesus, to see the truth of who Jesus really is, that they might be able to say that, uh, that, that that claim is true as well. And Lord, I do pray for any of us here who have settled perhaps with blinders back on that we're not open to the reality of who you truly are in our lives. Lord, as we come and worship, I pray you'd meet with us as well. And as we come and worship, as we come now and sing your praise, as we come and declare truth about who you are, as we come and lift our eyes to see you as the Son of God, I do pray that we would have that same response as the man who has been healed, that as we see you as you truly are, as we understand you as Jesus the Messiah, we would come to worship and give glory for who you are as well. In your name I pray. Amen.